we'll get underway. Good evening to everybody. Uh, my name is Christine Chenkin. I'm Professor of International Law here at the London School of Economics. And it's my very great honour to be chairing what I think is going to be an extraordinary event this evening. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome all of you here tonight to this arts public discussion panel event which is hosted in conjunction with Doughty Street Chambers and English Pen, and thank you to the both of them. Fifty years, years ago tomorrow, on the 2nd of November 1960, the jury at the Old Bailey acquitted Penguin Books for publishing an uncensored version of D.H. Lawrence's controversial novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover. At the time, the trial <coughs> created enormous public interest of course, also increasing enormously the sales of the book, as often happens with such public interest. But looking back, I think that we can see that it had an unprecedented impact both on the arts and on the law. And I think that given this sort of um, conjunction between arts and law, it's extremely appropriate that tonight's panel discussion is part of the LSE Arts Public Programme <coughs> And our panelists are all distinguished lawyers, so the arts and the law coming together. Now, I've been asked to say just a few words first about the LSE Arts Programme. Then I'll introduce our panelists, and then I'll hand over to Geoffrey Robertson, QC, who will be leading the panel framework. That will go on for about an hour, and then if there's time, we'll have some questions, uh, time for some questions afterwards. The LSE Arts Programme is very active at the moment. Some of you in the audience may have attended the event with Simon Skarma earlier this term. If you didn't, the podcast's available online. Um, Thursdays at lunchtime, there is a lunchtime series of concerts. And there's a new exhibition opening today in the Atrium Gallery um, over in the old building. It's an exhibition hosted by the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE called Cambodia, Reflections on the Khmer Rouge. It portrays life under the Khmer Rouge and also brings the story up to date with um, announcement um, commentary on the um, ongoing trials of the Khmer Rouge leaders. And as a pre-announcement, I've also been asked to say that there will be the third literary festival taking place at LSE between 16th and 19th of February with the theme of crossing borders and there'll be more announcements about that as it gets closer. But turning directly now to this evening's events, our panelists, as I said, are distinguished lawyers with long records of engagement in areas directly related to the issues raised by the trial of Lady Chatterley. Um, they could all have extremely long introductions. I'll keep them brief. Um, in our centre, I'm delighted to introduce Jeremy Hutchinson, QC. Jeremy Hutchinson was called to the bar Middle Temple in 1939. He served as, the, as a Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve during World War II, became Queen's Counsel in 1961, a bencher, a recorder of Bath, and of the Crown Court between 1963 and 1988. Uh, especially relevant to the issue of arts, he was Vice Chairman of the Arts Council of Great Britain and also first trustee and then chairman of the Tate Gallery. Even more relevant, he was junior defense counsel to Gerald Gardner at the trial of Lady Chatterley. So quite literally the person who was there 
and quite possibly, I think, one of our oldest speakers ever to come to the LSE. <laughs> and we're delighted to have you here uh, this evening. <laughs> Jeffrey Robertson, um, nearest to me, QC, again, is very well known to us all at the LSE. He's founder and head of Doughty Street Chambers, one of the leading human rights practices in the UK. He was the first president of the United Nations War Crimes Court in Sierra Leone, where he authored a landmark decision on the illegality of recruiting child soldiers. Again, especially relevant to issues arising tonight, he defended the last two cases brought for blasphemy in Britain, and he sits again as a recorder, Master of Middle Temper, Temple, Visiting Professor of Human Rights Law at Queen Mary College in London. And his most recent book is The Case of the Pope, Vatican Accountability for Human Rights Abuse. Now, if you're quick-sighted, you'll see that Helena Kennedy, QC, is also listed. And you will also note that Helena is not here. We are hoping she will make it. But um, duties in the House of Lords, I'm afraid, are making that um, uncertain. So we'll play that one as it goes. But we also have, exceptionally, an actor and a reader for tonight's performances. Ben Silverstone, also from Doughty Street's Chambers. He also did his LLM here at the LSE, so he's no stranger to the London School of Economics. He's acted in various films and theatres in what he described to me as his previous life, <laughs> and including a film version of Lolita, which is sort of connected <laughs> in the same sort of way. So I will hand over to Jeffrey, um, who will now take charge of the panel arrangements. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think he was Jeremy Irons standing in Lolita. Welcome to this evening's commemoration of the jury verdict in Lady Chatterley's, acquitting Penguin Books of publishing Lady Chatterley's Lover, the most socially impactful verdict ever delivered, I think, uh, at the Old Bailey. It's wonderful to have uh, Jeremy Hutchinson here to recollect what the trial, what went on during the trial. Uh, Helena, who's making a speech about the cuts as we speak, uh, I hope or hopes that she'll be able to come and talk about the preparation uh, for the trial. And we'll have some purple passages from the transcript uh, read by our latest member who gave up a successful career on the West End stage for the glorious uncertainty of the bar. It was uh, Gerald Gardner who led the defense with Jeremy and Dick Ducan, uh, was himself uh, a successful West End stage actor before he went into the law. He said the bar offered him a greater variety of parts and the chance to speak his own lines. <laughs> I'm here to provide a little of the history before and after uh, we talk about the trial. It's, it's not realized uh, very often that se the censorship of sexual references in literature came rather late. Censorship in British law originally was all about political speech, treason, imagining the death of the king. The Star Chamber would punish, 
preachers who, and, and those who wrote books famously, uh, women actresses, notorious whores uh, that had William Prynne's uh, tongue cut out because the Queen was rather fond of the stage in the days of Charles I. Milton, after the, while the Civil War was raging, wrote, of course, the famous Aeropagetica, that the censorship of writing was akin to the exploit of the gallant farmer who tried to keep out the crows by shutting the park gate. Milton himself uh, found his books burnt by the public hangman, uh, Paradise Lost. There was a line in it that suggested uh, the change of the sun perplexes monarchs. Uh, and that was enough in 1660 to have the public hangman uh, burn his book. The great change, of course, all sexual bawdry, all sexual references were dealt with by the ecclesiastical courts, uh, where, of course, the singers of bawdy songs or writers of bawdy poems generally could claim uh, benefit of clergy. So there was really little done to prosecute until a very important, one of the most important cases in English law in 1663 involving the dissolute royalist poet Sir Charles Sedley. Uh, Sedley uh, got drunk one night and, and uh, as the state trials report says from his balcony in Covent Garden, pulled down his breeches and excrementalized in the street. Uh, he demanded to be tried in the ecclesiastical courts. The king's court and the government decided that they couldn't tolerate this, that this was the time to wrest jurisdiction over all moral crimes from the moribund ecclesiastical courts and bring them in to the king's court. And so uh, Sir Charles was uh, fined 2,000 marks, uh, much to his disgruntlement. He left court claiming, uh, and I quote from the state reports, I'm the first man who was ever made to pay for shitting. And, uh, but the importance of that case was that he gave the king's courts the, the power to deal with offences contra bonus mores, the uh, offences that outraged public decency. And sure enough, soon in 1727, Curl's case, there was a law of obscene libel. Nothing much was done about obscenity. There were lots of obscene books flourishing. Fanny Hill, I think, was uh, uh, in the late 17th century. Uh, her exploits were really uh, old hat by the time we get to Linda Lovelace. Uh, everything was there in Fanny Hill and, and other pornographic books. But it wasn't until the eight, early 1800s that the law started to prosecute them, thanks to the Society for the Prevention of Vice. Uh, it was dubbed by Sidney Smith, who lived in Doughty Street, uh, the essayist, as the Society for the Suppression of the Vices of those earning less than 500 pounds a year. <laughs> but uh, as the century wore on and Queen Victoria uh, came to the throne, the time had come, said Lord Campbell, the Lord Chancellor, to punish obscenity. And in 1868, in the heyday of Victorian repression, where the legs of tables were, were covered, uh, we got the Hickland test for obscene libel. Any book or pamphlet, any part of which tended to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to immoral influences uh, was prosecuted and uh, its booksellers or authors convicted and jailed. Uh, the, the early 
victims of this test were, of course, the birth campaign, uh, birth control campaigners, Annie Besant and Charles Bradlaugh, and, and then by the end of the century, any bookseller who stocked Zola or Flaubert or Des Maupassant, uh, they were prosecuted and sent to jail. The problems with the test were threefold. First of all, it looked at the most, uh, if you like, the most corruptible of, of the youth, and, and the test was usually that of uh, the 14-year-old schoolgirl. Would it deprave the 14-year-old schoolgirl? He may have no desire to read the book at all, but uh, that was the, the, the litmus test. That is, she was the figure that was taken under Hicklin as the uh, test of would it deprave and corrupt. Secondly, the book wasn't taken as a whole. Purple passages were enough, uh, and in the case of the Wells of Loneliness, just one line was enough to have the book condemned. And thirdly, there was no expert evidence. And uh, so as we go into the 20th century, we find not only the stage where Ibsen is banned, Lord Bernard Shaw can't get Mrs. Warren's profession on. In 1915, Methuen are convicted for publishing D.H. Lawrence's The Rainbow, partly, of course, because of its anti-war message, but ostensibly because of its sex. We get the important case in 1928, the most important case before Lady Chatelet, of the Wells of Loneliness. Uh, this was the case where um, there was no expert evidence. The prosecution wanted to call Rudyard Kipling, so they brought him to court to glare at the magistrate. He was running the Keep the Empire Pure campaign, and of course the Wells of Loneliness was about two women who... Uh, well, uh, there was one line. It was convicted on the basis of one line, and that night they were not divided. This, said the magistrate, glorified the horrible tendency of lesbianism. And so uh, it was convicted. And uh, this was the time when Sir Archibald Bodkin was DPP. Uh, he insisted, he refused to allow Freud's work to be distributed. If you wanted to read Freud, you had to get a certificate saying that you were a doctor and needed it for medical purposes. <laughs> uh, he heard that there was this dreadful, filthy book called Ulysses, and there was a young don at Cambridge called F.R. Levis who was lecturing on it. And what he did was he sent plain-clothes policemen from Scotland Yard dressed as students were infiltrated Levis's lectures, uh, noting down the number of women who were present. And Ulysses was banned until, in 1936, it was discovered to the utter horror of the establishment that there was a sumptuously bound copy of Ulysses in F.E. Smith's uh, effects. He, he was Lord Chancellor, Lord Chancellor Birkenhead, he died in 1936, left his effects to be auctioned at, at Sotheby's, and there was this Morocco-bound copy of Ulysses. So uh, there was a terrible uh, to-do, and Ulysses was uh, allowed, had to be allowed in. But in fact, after the war even, uh, there was uh, a lot of great books, books by Henry Miller, books by um, even J.P. Donlevy, The Ginger Man, Lolita, Nabokov's book. If you wanted to read it, you had to go to Paris. It was available there in English uh, at Shakespeare and Company, but you couldn't read it in England. In 1951, the DPP actually prosecuted the Kinsey Report, 
uh, in Fr uh, Doncaster. The Doncaster justices were offered this great moment in uh, the history of obscuritism uh, if they convicted the Kinsey Report. They didn't. They actually acquitted the bookseller who stocked it. But uh, then the DPP went on uh, against the uh, four leading publishers of the time. And uh, two of them were convicted at the Old Bailey, uh, one acquitted over the philanderer, one the jury couldn't make up its mind. So something had to be done. And it was done by Roy Jenkins, who brought in a private member's bill uh, as an MP, Norman St. John Stevis, who, who had helped to draft it, and uh, the Society of Authors, led by A.P. Herbert. And uh, there was a select committee. It was addressed by A.P. Herbert, and it, it acted upon what he famously said. He told them, uh, it's the other man you want to get after, the man who sits down and thinks, I want to make my readers as randy as I can as often as I can. That's the man you're after always. He's not bothering whether he corrupts anyone. He's marketing lust. The problem that you have to face uh, is to distinguish between myself and the other fellow. <laughs> so, on that basis, the Obscene Publications Act was passed. Its preamble read, it's an act to provide for the protection of literature and to strengthen the law concerning pornography. So, the new law, which required the book to be taken as a whole, which said that it should be judged according to its actual audience and not according to 14-year-old schoolgirls who, who, who might read it, and it made expert evidence admissible on matters of, to show that the book was uh, a matter of served, uh, had merit that outweighed its obscenity. There was uh, this idea that Parliament had that there were these two different things. Uh, there was pornography on one hand and there was literature on the other and that uh, the act would enable people to make the distinction. But of course in the list that Scotland Yard presented <coughs> to the select committee of obscenity, of obscene works, pornographic works they included The Ginger Man by Don Levy Lolita by Napakoff and Lady Chatterley's Love. So what, which of these books would be the all-important test case. Why choose Lady Chatterley's Lover? Let's listen to Ben uh, giving the opening, an extract from the opening uh, of the prosecution case from which we can uh, perhaps answer that question. Members of the jury, the prosecution will invite you to say that it does tend, certainly that it may tend, to induce lustful thoughts in the minds of those who read it. It goes further, you may think. It sets upon a pedestal promiscuous and adulterous intercourse. It commends, and indeed it sets out to commend, sensuality almost as a virtue. It encourages, and indeed even advocates, coarseness and vulgarity of thought and of language. You may think that it must tend to deprave the minds, certainly of some, and you may think many of the persons who are likely to buy it at the price of three and six. 
and read it with 200,000 copies already printed and ready for release. You may think that one of the ways in which you can test this book and test it from the most liberal outlook is to ask yourselves the question, when you have read it through, would you approve of your young sons and indeed young daughters because girls can read as well as boys? (laughs) Reading this book... Is it a book that you would have lying around in your own house? Is it a book that you would even wish your wife or your servants to read? (laughs) And so we come, members of the jury, to the book itself. And you must forgive me if I have occupied too much of your time in preliminaries. The book has been passed to you. It is a book about Lady Chatterley who was a young woman whose husband was wounded in the First World War. They were married at the beginning of the war. He comes back wounded so that he is crippled and paralyzed from the waist downwards and unable to have any sexual intercourse. Members of the jury, I invite you to say that in effect, the book is a book describing how that woman, deprived of sex from her husband, satisfies her sexual desires, a sex-starved girl, how she satisfies that starvation with a particularly sensual man who happens to be her husband's gamekeeper. And you have the episodes of sexual intercourse. There are, I think, described in all some 13 throughout the course of this book. You will see that they are described in the greatest detail. The curtain is never drawn. One starts in my lady's boudoir, in her husband's house. One goes to the floor of a hut in the forest with a blanket laid down as a bed. We see them do it again in the undergrowth in the forest among the shrubbery. And not only in the undergrowth of the forest, in the pouring rain, both of them stark naked and dripping with raindrops. (laughs) One sees them in the keeper's cottage, first in the evening on the hearth rug and then we have to wait until dawn to see them do it again in bed (laughs) and finally members of the jury we move the site to Bloomsbury (laughs) and we have it all over again in the attic in a Bloomsbury boarding house and that is the variation the time and place that it all happened the emphasis is always on the pleasure the satisfaction and the sensuality of the episode. Members of the jury, not only that type of background, but words. No doubt they will be said to be good old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon four-letter words, and no doubt they are, appear again and again. These matters are not voiced normally in this court, but when it forms the whole subject matter of the prosecution, then members of the jury, we cannot avoid voicing them. The word fuck or fucking occurs some 30 times. I have added all them all up, but I do not guarantee that I have got them all. Cunt, 14 times. Balls, 13 times. Shit and arse, six times apiece. Cock, four times. Piss, three times, and so on. (laughs) Members of the jury... 
It is against that background, as I say, that you have to view these passages. Well, that was all said uh, without uh, amusement, without laughter, and the utter solemnity of court number one at the Old Bailey on the 20th of October, 1916. And, of course, the clue there is that the book was to be published to, at three and sixpence. It was Alan Lane's great boast that he wanted to make books as available at the same price as cigarettes. And uh, that was the cost that Penguin was planning to, uh, proposing to put the book out at. The decision to prosecute was taken by the Attorney General, Reginald Manningham Buller, bullying manner as he was known down at the Bailey. Uh, He read the first four chapters, uh, which are pretty innocuous, on the boat train to his holiday uh, to Southampton and did a note to the DPP saying, uh, we must prosecute, Uh, I hope you get a conviction. The DPP then decided, uh, under the new law, that they had to get some prosecution experts to say what a dreadful book this was. Uh, Who would they get? The first suggestion was Rudyard Kipling, who'd been so helpful in 1928 over the wells of loneliness. Uh, Then the DPP discovered he died in 1936. So uh, they then wrote to Helen Gardner, the professor at Oxford, to F.R. Leavis, and to uh, Noel Annan. And they got letters back saying this was a great work of literature and they had no intention of uh, appearing for the prosecution. So uh, they were bereft. Michael Rubenstein, the brilliant and hard-working solicitor for Penguin Books, wrote to hundreds, literally everyone who uh, had any significance as a novelist, as a would-be novelist, as a journalist, as uh, a bishop. It was uh, particularly effective to get the Bishop of Woolwich as a defence witness. Seventy-five witnesses were there. Amusingly, and if you read uh, the new edition, the anniversary edition, you'll see some of the rejection notices uh, from people like Evelyn Warren, a hilarious rejection notice from Enid Blyton, <laughs> who, who said that much as she admired Pegwood Books, her husband would not allow her to appear. <laughs> so, um, but nonetheless, uh, there were uh, a great many witnesses, 75 witnesses uh, by the end of the, t- the day were primed to appear at the Old Bailey. 35 did. Gerald Gardner uh, led Jeremy for the prosecution. He did the opening and closing, for the defence, he did the opening and closing speeches, uh, and Jeremy did much of the examination in chief. Uh, Gardner was an unusual man. He was, by that time, he'd been chairman of the Bar Council, uh, and so he was the leader, in effect, of the Corps Celebre Bar. Uh, He'd also been a pacifist during the war, a founder of CND. He was chairman of the New Statesman and of the Howard League. Uh, He was an extraordinary man. Perhaps he he helped Tom Sargent and uh, Peter Benenson to set up justice and the International Commission of Jurists. He went and looked at treason trials. He was perhaps the very first uh, of the, what are now over-fashionably perhaps called human rights lawyers. But... uh, He was, um, and the first 
Uh, until this time, I, one of the important things that was done at the outset of the trial, uh, there was a provision that any, uh, any prosecution that involved any description of sex uh, could have an all-male jury. And until then, uh, obscenity cases uh, they had automatically had all-male juries. And uh, Jeremy and uh, Gerald Gardner waived this provision and actually used the right of challenge to get uh, more women on the jury. So um, Lady Chatley was interesting, and perhaps Jeremy will tell us about the, the thinking that men being overprotective to women in their absence, the book in Connie Chatley, uh, Lawrence writing uh, from a woman's point of view, for all those reasons, this was uh, the first obscenity trial jury that had uh, a number of women on it. Uh, there were a number of, in the course of the trial, a number of examples of uh, extraordinary forensic skill. I guess the, uh, one of the greatest skills of leading counsel is to do something totally improper and to arrange for your junior to be blamed for it. Uh, and uh, another is the ability to get in evidence which is absolutely vital to the jury to hear, uh, which the judge is certainly going to rule inadmissible. Uh, there was, uh, in this time, of course, you're never allowed in the criminal courts to call politicians, the legislators, to say what they meant by a law. You have to listen to the judge say what he thinks par uh, Parliament meant by the law, which is absolutely forbidden to call the legislators. So uh, on day three, uh, when uh, Mr. Gardner announced that uh, his learned junior, Mr. Hutchinson, would call the next witness, uh, Mr. Roy Jenkins MP. And uh, Jeremy introduced Roy Jenkins as the author of a number of books. And then, <laughs> on that basis, uh, first of all, let me ask you this. Uh, I think you know the preamble of the Obscene Publications Act says to provide for the protection of literature. In your view, is this book Lady Chatterley's Lover Literature? Yes, it most certainly is, said Roy Jenkins. Indeed, if I may add, it did not occur to me in the five years' work I did on the bill. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the judge exploded. <laughs> I am so glad C.H. Rolfe, who was an observer of the trial, uh, said, Jenkins said, uh, I am so sorry, my lord, said Mr. Jenkins, who did not look sorry. <laughs> And Mr. Hutchinson sat down looking satisfied. <laughs> the other great uh, ability, I think, of, uh, of counsel that is often overlooked uh, because of the concentration on and television and film on barristers cross-examining is actually the art of examination-in-chief. Uh, and this is, has turned uh, more verdicts than uh, I can think of anything else in terms of advocacy skills. It is uh, a special skill, uh, particularly in the criminal law, particularly with expert witnesses. And we're going to hear uh, an extract from what most observers at the trial thought was the turning point. It was Jeremy's examination-in-chief of Richard Hoggart, the author of The Uses of Literacy, uh, a remarkable uh, piece of uh, evidence which, uh, which really did sway the trial. 
I want to pass now to the four-letter words. You told the jury yesterday you were educated at an elementary school. Where was it? Leeds. How did you start your life? I was born into the working class and I was orphaned at the age of eight and brought up by my grandmother. What is your view as to the genuineness and necessity in this book of the use of these four-letter words in the mouth of Mellows? They seem to me totally characteristic of many people. And I would like to say not only working-class people, because that would be wrong. They are used, or seem to me to be used, very freely indeed far more freely than many of us know. Fifty yards from this court this morning, I heard a man say fuck three times as he passed me. He was speaking to himself and he said, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, <laughs> as he went past. If you have worked on a building site, as I have, you will find they recur over and over again. The man I heard on that building site I heard this morning, and, and the men on building sites use the words as words of contempt. And one of the things Lawrence found most worrying was that the word for this important relationship had become a word of vile abuse. So one would say, fuck you, to a man, although the thing has totally lost its meaning. It has become simply derision. And in this sense, he wanted to re-establish the meaning of it, the proper use of it. What do you say about the use of these words as they have been used in this book? <clears throat> the first effect, when I first read it, was some shock, because they don't go into polite literature normally. Then, as one read further on, one found the words lost that shock. They were being progressively purified as they were used. We have no word in English for this act, which is not either a long abstraction or an evasive euphemism. And we are constantly running away from it or dissolving into dots at passages like that. He wanted us to say, this is what one does in a simple, ordinary way, one fucks with no sniggering or dirt. Well, I haven't spoken in public for a long time, and uh, I wouldn't be here if my favorite junior <laughs> and my favorite peeress, who isn't here, and of course, wonderful penguins, had uh, forced me out of my contented retirement. <laughs> and uh, if I therefore falter in the like next 20 minutes, you must forgive me. And if I use some of the breath which is still within me, 
to blow my own trumpet, you must also forgive me. Now, what were my thoughts as I sat in court number one at the Old Bailey waiting for the judge to take his seat? They weren't the lustful and libidinous thoughts which Mervyn Griffith Jones said this book would arouse in the jury's mind. They were the astonishment at the irony of the situation. Prisoner at the bar, as miscreants at the uh, Central Criminal Court were always addressed, of course, was Penguin Books. But of course, the real prisoner was D.H. Lawrence. And uh, as I sat there, I saw him in the finished in the enormous dock in Court One, which takes up. Is that all right? Sorry, takes up such a huge space. And I saw him sitting there on a chair alone, this frail figure with his red beard and his pale skin and his sharp darting eyes which he had, looking rather like the self-portrait of Van Gogh and with the same extraordinary virility. And uh, I thought, I've been practicing for 14 years after coming out of the Navy and I'd appeared in that famous court for murderers alleged, traitors, fraudsmen, rapists and what has this persecuted genius brought here for? He'd written an obscene article, according to the indictment, of such depravity as to be likely to corrupt all those 200,000 people who were going to buy it for a mere three and sixpence, and so undermine the nation's sense of morality. His reasons for writing it were on the record to condemn the cheapening and the commercialization of sex for doing dirt on sex, to restore the beauty and the sacredness of the physical relations of two people in love, to make it precious, not shameful, and to bring respect for what he called the driving essence of life. My book is a tender and fragile as the naked self. And there we know he first wanted to call it tenderness. And his passionate view that the industrial society <coughs> we are now had more and more in this country was based on money, materialism and success had destroyed the human relationship of love 
and had lost touch with the <coughs> natural, physical, intuitive side of life. And here he was in that dock, an evil pornographer. Now, when the customs seized copies of the first edition of Lady Chatterley, which had been privately uh, published in Florence in the 1920s, it was described by journalists, and I quote them, a literary cesspool, an outpouring of evil, the work of a diseased mind, the foulest book in English literature. And I thought to myself, who are the people who ought to be in the dock? And then I thought, it only requires one member of the jury to be like one of these journalists and we'll bring, a, bring about a disagreement at the end of the trial because of course then there were no majority verdicts and a disagreement of course would have been a total disaster for the defence and it was my dread throughout the case that there might be just that one on the jury. Well, we challenged two nasty-looking men. They came to the book to be sworn, and we successfully won one extra woman to make it three in all. And Gerald and I both agreed that in cases of indecency, women were far more relaxed and far more sensible than men and didn't carry the male baggage with them. I was a good choice as junior counsel, although I say it myself, for various reasons. <clears throat> My father, in 1929, had been briefed to save Lawrence's pictures, which had been seized by the police from the Warren uh, gallery, picture gallery, and to save them from destruction, because the, the, uh, what happened was that the police visited the gallery and they take the pictures before the magist magistrate, and you have to show cause why they should not be destroyed. And uh, he persuaded Mr. Mead, the magistrate, to accept a negotiation that the pictures should be saved and returned to the artist on the, an under, solemn undertaking that he'd never exhibit them in public again. And I have a letter from Lawrence to my father, which ends up, you'll, you'll soon be the St. George of the censorship battle. And I thought it was a privilege indeed to be the second St. George in this crusade. And another reason was that Aldous and Maria Huxley, who were both there at Lawrence's death in Vence in 1930, were friends of my parents. 
1939, as a young man, I got into a boat and sailed from Glasgow through the Panama Canal to Los Angeles to go and stay with them, <coughs> where they were then living. And <coughs> Aldous and Maria talked about Lawrence. And Mar Maria told me how she'd typed out the half of the th third edition because Lawrence rewrote Lady Chatterley three times and it was to be his greatest work and it was the work that he loved most and she typed out the last half in order to save the blushes uh, of the printer and uh, Lawrence was of course born into the great working-class culture uh, of the mining Midlands, so little known by the intellectuals in the South. And my ancestor, Colonel Hutchinson, who was a famous radical regicide, was famous for defending Nottingham Castle in the Civil War. Uh, and, uh, of course, his wife wrote this lovely book called The Memoirs of Colonel Hutchinson and uh, from that time on my ancestors all lived in Nottingham or Newark and lastly Ragley Hall the home of Sir Clifford was based on Renishaw outside Sheffield where the Sitwell family lived and the Sitwells were childhood friends of my father in that area. So I threw myself enthusiastically into the preparation of the cases you've heard with Michael Rubenstein and seeking for individuals who might establish this new defense which you've heard read out. Being for the public good in the interest of science, literature, art and or learning or other objects of general concern. What on earth did that mean? Educational, sociological, moral, a weak thought, all of them. But there were no precedents and of course Gerald Gardner had to argue that all these the, the, it was wide open to bring evidence on all these other matters as well as the literary merit. And so we decided that the witnesses must be able, must not be living in ivory uh, castles and must be able to talk in simple terms and must not have any uh, any uh, 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 agendas of their own and they must have no skeletons in the cupboards and uh, part of my job as junior counsel of course was not only to decide which witnesses to call and in which order, but also to keep various people out of the witness box. For instance, T.S. Eliot, 
who was longing to give evidence <laughs> uh, uh, to set the record straight because he'd made some very unhappy remarks about Lawrence earlier on and he wanted to put the record straight. I mean, also, we had to make quite sure that these witnesses were strong enough to stand up against the abuse which inevitably would come from Mr. Mervyn Griffith Jones. So that, that was my first task. And uh, originally, we had Geoffrey Lawrence Barrister, who was going to lead me in the case. And Geoffrey Lawrence was a, a, a wonderful criminal advocate, and it had made his name, as you probably remember, defending Dr. Uh, Bogkin Adams at Eastbourne, who's, uh, was involved in what was called helping and easing the passing of his patients, particularly of the ones who were going to leave him motor cars and motor. <laughs> and uh, he dropped out quite shortly before the date of the trial. And uh, Rubinstein decided, in consultation with Penguin, that the chairman of the bar, Gerald Gardner, should come in as le leading counsel. Well, he was a great, wonderful civil advocate and lawyer, but not one who, what we might call, slummed it at the Old Bailey. And uh, the rather acerbic judge, Mr. Justice Melford Stevenson, was heard to say about Gerald Gardner, when Gerald enters the court, he looks as if he's on his way to his own martyrdom. <laughs> and it was quite true that with his hollow eyes and his pale complexion and his great height, he gave uh, an impression uh, of uh, innocence and martyrdom, uh, rather like a figure out of an El Greco picture, which of course in this particular case was absolutely ideal. He was a reticent man, he never spoke about his own convictions, and I think he was a Christian socialist because of his friendship with Dick Shepherd. And he was an ascetic. It was barley water, not Chateau Lafitte. And his only indulgence, when he was asked, was that he had his hair cut at the Savoy Hotel. <laughs> All these were ideal qualities <laughs> for this particular case, which soon developed into a case of them and us. And uh, uh, massage parlors and top shelves in newsagents and blue films and pornography, which of course was the fodder of we old Bailey hacks, was unknown territory for Gerald Gardner. <laughs> and I must say, I was fearful. Would he? I didn't know him personally then would he cope with the overbearing 
Mervyn Griffiths Jones, or the ex-prosecutor at the Old Bailey, Mr. Justice Byrne, who was the judge. Would the four-letter words trip naturally off his tongue? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> as it was, his air of martyrdom and innocence was enormously impressive. He gave an immaculate performance of jury advocacy as his best and throughout the trial he really dominated the court. At the pre-trial conference with our two main experts who were Graham Huff from Cambridge and uh, the glorious Helen Gardner from Oxford, I did raise the difficult passage which seemed to suggest anal intercourse between these two what we in the Navy used to call steering the windward passage. <laughs> but uh, uh, later spelt out in meticulous detail in the, uh, the, uh, the paper called The Encounter by the warden of all sales, John Sparrow, who was an undoubted expert in the matter. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> learnt, I may, may say, in the rough trade which he so enthusiastically followed. I don't see it, said Gerald. Complete rubbish, said Helen. And although Huff looked a little uncomfortable, I decided to let it be, because I realised at once that the attitude of my learned leader and the best woman expert that we began to call, their view that only an old Etonian and an ex-guards officer could possibly have such a dirty mind <laughs> would probably win the day. But when Gerald said twice in his opening address to the jury, you'll find no perversion in this book, I thought, oh, what courage but what a herit hostage to fortune. But it was all right in the end because, of course, Mervyn didn't trigger it until all the evidence was being called. Uh, Gerald accepted all the witnesses which we collected together when he came into the case. And his only contribution to the evidence was inspired because at the end of the conference he turned to Rubenstein and said you must find me a young woman if possible under 21 and very beautiful who's read this novel and found it totally unshocking. I said Gerald you know young women under 21 are hardly experts in literature you can't get such a person into the witness box Oh, find one who's done an English course at university. That's be sufficient. So off went Rubinstein and brought back a wonderful young lady called Bernadine Wall, age 21, educated in a convent, <laughs> <laughs> uh, did 
a literature, got a literature degree at Cambridge and had written half a novel. She wasn't, as I see recently in the press, the star witness, but she was what I might call the cherry on the cake because Gerald Gardner called her as the last witness in the case and she came into court looking absolutely beautiful, went into the witness box and said exactly what Gerald wanted her to say. And that was an inspired stroke. Now, uh, Gerald asked me what witnesses I'd like to call. And uh, I said at once, Richard Hoggart, Roy Jenkins, E.M. Foster, and our wonderful client, Alan Lane. And as uh, Geoffrey has said, it, it, the most difficult thing as an advocate, rarely more difficult than cross-examination, is uh, taking your client in chief and presenting him to the jury as he or she and you would like the witness to appear before the jury. It's a difficult and a subtle job. And uh, Richard Hoggart was the most perfect witness in the case. He was born into the working class in Hull. He was brought up by his grandmother, grammar school and Leicester University, and became senior lecturer in English literature and author of that lovely book called The Uses of Literacy, which was a great book about the culture of the working classes. He was small, clear, full of common sense, and he spoke most beautifully about Lawrence's Puritanism in the tradition of Bunyan and Milton and Blake. And I wanted Lawrence's beautiful and poetical prose to echo round that old court, that con those contaminated walls of court number one at the Old Bailey. And so I read out long passages from the book, asking Hoggart to comment upon each one of them. And passages, not just the sex passages, but the other passages, which if you've read the book, most beautiful writing about nature and about the countryside and so on. And as I read these passages out, there was absolute silence in court. And I felt as we went on, the atmosphere in the court changing as these words went round the court. And uh, I found it quite difficult, as I almost do now, to control the steadiness of my voice. Puritanical, Mr. Hoggart? I'm not suggesting bad faith, but is it your genuine and considered view, puritanical? Yes, Mr. Griffiths Jones. Well, then, I've lived for long under a misapprehension of the word and the meaning of puritan. 
Yes, indeed, said Mr. Hoggart. <laughs> Many people in this country have. It's a, an example of the, uh, how language decays. And he then gave a lovely talk on Puritanism, point, pointing out that one, a, a, a Puritan, and the proper use of the world, is one with an intense responsibility for his conscience. And then, Griffith Jones did exactly what I hoped he would. He read out passages, the worst passages, in his sarcastic and rather sneering voice, ending uh, a passage which he called the last bout between the two of them, Connie and Mellors, the life within life, the sheer, warm, potent loveliness, the strange weight of the balls between his legs. What mystery that could lie soft and heavy in one's hand. Puritan? Mr. Hoggart? Yes, Mr. Griffiths Jones. Puritan in its reverence. What? Reverence for the weight of a man's balls? <laughs> yes, indeed. It was a decisive moment. I could see the jury was enjoying it. And I felt, for the first time, comfort and confidence. And the judge, of course, realized this, and in his summing out, referred of course, to this passage, and in his rather serious and rather sarcastic voice, he said, and members of the jury, you will have to give what weight you think <laughs> to that opinion. And then, of course, my second witness, as you've heard, was Roy Jenkins, who I was determined to get into the court Although, as Geoffrey uh, has said, he could hardly be described as an expert witness. And I asked him the questions which you've heard. And uh, uh, the, uh, Mr. Rolfe, who was the editor of the first Penguin edition, wrote in that introduction that neither Mr. Jenkins nor Mr. Hutchinson looked at all sorry and added a nice puff Never has the intention of Parliament been so skilfully put before the court with an effect out of all proportion to its brevity. And uh, Hoggart was the longest witness and Jenkins was the shortest. My third witness was E.M. Foster. What joy to stand up in the central court and say call Mr. E.M. Foster and in came this little man in a rather dirty Macintosh <laughs> and uh, I called it a slight tittering course by asking him the first question I think you've written some novels Mr. Foster <laughs> and uh, he described 
Lawrence, and he was the only witness in the whole case who actually knew Lawrence himself. And uh, the greatest imaginative novelist of his generation, a preacher like Bunyan, with a passionate opinion of the world and what it ought to be but what it is not. No questions from Mr. Griffiths Jones. And no mention of his name in the judge's summing up at all. I don't think he had any idea who Mr. Foster was. <laughs> well, there we are. I, and uh, my time is really up, I think. And uh, I end by saying to you, this audience, what's wrong with this country of ours? What is wrong with us? But Lawrence loved this country so deeply we still flounder around in our embarrassment and our treatment of sex. Can't we accept two fundamental things? One, that since the creation of man, most human beings are attracted by the opposite sex, and a minority are attracted by the same sex. A minority are attracted by both. Um, secondly, that nobody can and nobody ever will know what one human being feels for another human being in the privacy and depth of their own heart. Can't we treat sex with a little more seriousness and respect as Lawrence wanted people to do? Can't we grow up and calm down? <laughs> we still have the four-letter words unpurified and no other words we can use. The Times is still full of asterisks. The church is torn from head to foot and continues to humiliate women and gays and yet they still sit in the House of Lords. Martin Amis has announced that it's impossible to write about sex. Perhaps Lawrence did have the last word. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Well, I think it would be a very good task for law students today to be asked, well, how would you prosecute uh, in the Lady Chatterley's lover case? This is how Mervyn Griffiths-Jones, on behalf of the prosecution, closed. He had the last word because in those days uh, the prosecutor always had the last word before the judges summing up, which of course uh, supported the prosecution. Uh, this is how he closed it. Members of the jury, there must be standards, must there not? 
I say this in all seriousness, and no doubt it is a matter which you will consider as serious, which we are to maintain some standards of morality, some standards of language and conversation, some standards of conduct which are essential to the well-being of our society. There must be instilled in all of us, must there not, standards of restraint. And when one sees what is happening today, and has been happening, perhaps all the more since the war, restraint becomes all the more essential, does it not, in the education of youth of our country, and an understanding that restraint is essential. Members of the jury, you only have to read your papers to see day by day the results of unbridled sex. I have in fact here a document which is issued by Her Majesty's Stationery Office called Criminal Statistics. And I have looked through that document for 1959 last year just to try and see what kind of picture it shows of cases which can be said to result from unrestrained sex. It is all through lack of standards lack of restraint, lack of discipline, mental, moral discipline. You will judge this as ordinary men and women with your feet, I trust, firmly planted on the ground. Are these views that you have heard from these most eminent and academic ladies and gentlemen, are they really of such value as the, as the views which you, perhaps if I may say so, without the eminence and without the academic learning that they possess, hold and conceive from the ordinary life in which you live? You have this reverend gentleman regarding this book as a most impressive statement of the Christian view of marriage. Wow. There it is. Something sacred, he said, in a real sense, as an act of holy communion. Do you think that that is how the girls working in the factory are going to read this book, as something sacred, in a real sense, as an act of holy communion? Or does it put my Lord Bishop, with all respect to him, wholly out of touch with a very large percentage of the number of people who are going to buy this book at three and six? What about tenderness. Is that a theme which it is in the public good to read as expressed in this book? I will tell you how it is expressed in this book in the words of the book itself. I quote, tenderness really, cunt tenderness. Sex is really the closest touch of all. Cunt tenderness. That is the tenderness that this book is advocating through the mouth of one of its chief characters. And may I again quote from my note. I believe in something, this is Mellor speaking, I believe in being warm-hearted. I believe especially in being warm-hearted in love. I believe that if men could fuck with warm hearts and women took it warm-heartedly, everything would come all right. That is put before you as a theme which justifies this book for the public good. The theme advocating to the young of this country who are going to read this book. Fuck warm-heartedly and everything will come all right. 
Does it justify it? Would you look at page 258? It is a passage which describes what is called the night of sensual passion. It was a night of sensual passion in which she was a little startled and almost unwilling. Yet it pierced again with piercing thrills of sensuality, different, sharper, more terrible than the thrills of tenderness, but at the moment more desirable. Though a little frightened, she let him have his way. Not very easy sometimes, not very easy, you know, to know what in fact he's driving at in that passage. <laughs> Though a little frightened, she let him have his way, and the reckless, shameless sensuality shook her to her foundations, stripped her to the very last, and made a different woman of her. It was not really love. It was not voluptuousness. It was sensuality, sharp and searing as fire, burning the soul to tinder. I don't know. Is this stuff having a good influence on the younger reader? Burning out the shames, the deepest, oldest shames, in the most secret places, it cost her an effort to let him have his way and his will of her. One wonders why, with all the experiences that have gone before. jury had realised what passage was being driven at, uh, they would have convicted. Uh, that was his encounter article. Helena is here, having made her speech about the cuts, and uh, will now give us a short talk. Not a talk. Not a talk, I promise you. I just want to, I'm sorry that I didn't get here earlier, um, because uh, the big debate on the cuts is taking place in the House of Lords tonight, and uh, I did want my chance of excoriating the government, and uh, I am afraid even the, resi the, the, the tantalizing thought of being here to uh, take part in this uh, couldn't dissuade me from that. But um, I just wanted to tell you that about, I, I suppose it was the, the last time there was an anniversary of Lady Chatterley's lover, the BBC uh, Radio 4 asked me if I would uh, present a program about the trial, and uh, we did. Uh, we had a terrific uh, business of researching it, and then finding people who uh, could still speak to what happened in the trial. And Jeremy and I uh, got together, and you were one of my people who uh, who took part in the program. And uh, one of the things that came through to me about this, which uh, which was is was about, of course, the, the nature of the book and about how uh, uh, so many witnesses came forward uh, to speak to, to, to its literary merits. But, but the thing that I thought was very interesting was what it told us about a changed jury. You've got to remember that at this time, you had to be a property owner to sit on a jury. It's not like juries nowadays. It was as, as late as 90, early 1970s, I think Jeff will remember, 1972, that we had the shift which meant that you could have a different kind of jury which was much more representative. But one of the things that even then made the difference was that um, uh, the, the publisher 
was able to say that he himself had never had a university education, that he had left school at 16. For many people on that jury, they'd left school when they were 13 and 14. Um, and what he said was that Penguin Books were about making available to people great works of literature of all kinds, that people could make their own choices, but that from them they would have access to uh, great literature in the way that had not been available to ordinary people before. And there was no doubt that there was a something in the air at that time, which was a resentment, a post-war resentment about the way in which, the, as Orwell said, the, 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 the pinstriped, trousered uh, folk ran everything. And somehow there was something going on there which was about saying that uh, we should not we should make decisions about what we read, and we should not have others making those decisions for us. Now, I just wanted to say finally to all of you that you've heard, I hope, had an enjoyable evening. But the battles around these issues go on. When I went into the House of Lords in 1997, I can honestly tell you I did not think that for the next five years the thing that would exercise people more than anything else was debating homosexuality. It was the, it was the constant thing where we were always having to debate, you know, sec, Section 28, whether teachers should in any way uh, even mention homosexuality, and uh, how it was still uh, possible to corrupt the, the young. And uh, I would travel in America and people would say that they used to watch our channels on television and they used to say, why is it you're always debating two things, fox hunting and, uh, and, 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 and homosexuality? And, uh, and, and as a civil libertarian, I said, well, I'm actually in favor of both. Um, but, uh, but, but what was very interesting was it really was to listen to those debates where you still had those extraordinary expressions of, of, uh, of horror, um, of, of, uh, of revulsion, of deploring uh, what, uh, what uh, uh, is, is uh, the sexuality of a, of a significant percentage of our population. And to listen to those debates was really quite shocking that they were happening as the century was turning into the 21st century, that it was still going on, that they were still uh, debating this stuff and still so full of hypocrisy Hypocrisy because Lord Annan always told the story that in the 60s, when around this, not very long after this, this case, um, of course, the Wolfenden report um, made it possible for people to have consenting adult um, homosexual relationships. But what was interesting was that, that he, you know, at that time, one of the people who was, who was really arguing for uh, a change in the law was Lord Annan, Noel Annan. At the same time that he was trying to get legislation through on, on liberalizing um, homosexual relationships, he also was trying to get a, 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 a bill through Parliament on, um, on the welfare of badgers. And he said to somebody, he said, it's very interesting, he said, you know, when every time we have the debate about the, the, the homosexuality, the thing, place is packed and so on, and he said, but I can't get any support for my badger's bill. <laughs> and no interest in the badger's bill, he said. And the guy said, that's because there's no badgers in the House of Lords. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well I, I mean, I remember it so well. I mean, I remember being there, and I was, uh, of course, you know, I was the, the, this wild-eyed feminist, and uh, Lord Longford turning around to me and saying to me, I know what they did in Sodom, but what did they do in Gomorrah? Uh, and it was quite clear that I would know the answer to that. Um, so, 
All I can tell you is that, that the hypocrisy that there was, and, and uh, uh, it still lives on in certain, in, in certain sections of our society. And so the battles around freedom of speech continue. They are continuing to this day. Even, even now, we're having to deal with battles around uh, 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 these issues. And so all I can say to you, those of you who are still students, those of you who are new practitioners, the battles around human rights around civil liberties, around the rights of the individual, will continue for a long time to come. We're all having to fight them. Thank you. To end our story, uh, the last witness was called. Uh, Gerald Gardner wanted, according to uh, Michael Rubenstein's brother of the paper, not just a 21-year-old uh, who'd uh, read the book, a 21-year-old virgin who'd read the book. She was called, made an impact. Uh, the final speeches, the jury were out for less than three hours after a very hostile summing up, uh, and they came back uh, with their momentous acquittal. The uh, judge showed his disagreement with the verdict and the way judges so often do by refusing an application for defence costs. Uh, perhaps understandably because the book sold three million copies within the next three months. Uh, it was bought by 14-year-old schoolgirls. There was a wonderful letter in The Guardian on Saturday by uh, someone who'd been a 14-year-old schoolgirl in 1960 who said we all class of girls <laughs> bought it and, and our only regret was that it wasn't bought by 14 year old schoolboys. <laughs> but uh, it was of course a political trial in the sense that it turned after the four letter words had been uh, exploded the prosecution just became interested and the judge certainly became interested in promoting adultery. It was a period of course when in divorce law, you couldn't get divorced unless you proved your spouse had committed a matrimonial crime. Adultery was a crime and had to be proved as such with legions of private eyes and so forth. And I think Gerald Gardner, who went on to become Labour's Lord Chancellor in 1964, and he only agreed. He said, look, I've been a pacifist in the war. I'll, I'll get a lot of attack. And Harold Wilson said, what are your terms? And he said, abolish the, let me abolish the death penalty. And that was the condition on which he became Labour's Lord Chancellor and his reforms. He, it was Gerald Gardner who I think in sympathy and memory of Constance Chatterley uh, who abolished the matrimonial crime and uh, we had no fault divorce. He abolished the death penalty. He gave fair uh, sailing to, uh, Lord, to the bill to uh, decriminalise homosexuality to decriminalise abortion, uh, the, and he abolished, of course, the Lord Chamberlain, which was uh, amusing, because his last appearance on the West End, he was about to go on, and then they got the Lord Chancellor's, uh, Lord Chamberlain's blue pencil, uh, which had cut out his part entirely. And uh, so this was a Labour Party. We, we look back, this was the, Lady Chatterley was the gateway, if you like, through which the 60s swung. Uh, it was the... Um, the beginning, the victory, if you like, of the liberal humanitarians over Orwell's striped trousered ones who rule. Uh, and uh, it was, it, it created the belief that the Labour Party was infused with humanitarian values. Uh, Michael Foote, Tony Benn were all supporters of these great reforms. 
of course, today the Labour Party led us to war in Iraq, control orders, demands for 90-day detentions, uh, deporting Gary McKinnon, the Asperger's hacker, to America, um, banning disc jockeys from Texas from coming. Uh, it really is uh, a different party. It does seem so much that the liberal humanitarianism of the Labour uh, figures of the 1960s have uh, been lost. Well, what happened with censorship? After a while, Lady Chatterley was, uh, the case was relegated to, oh yes, that's a defense of great literature. Uh, they prosecuted it, and uh, let's keep it away from juries. Jeremy uh, made one of his rare failed appearances at Bow Street Magistrates when the magistrate condemned Fanny Hill in 1965. But he, he returned to a great victory in 1970 when he defended Paul Abelman's The Mouth and Oral Sex. Uh, he called Margaret Drabble as a witness, and there was a remarkable moment when Judge King Hamilton, for it was he who was the judge, leant over and said to her, we've got on without oral sex for 2,000 years. <laughs> Why do we have to read about it now? And Margaret, uh, sort of, there was a long silence, and he pounced. He said, witness, why do you hesitate? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, my lord, I was just trying to remember the passage from Ovid. Well, <laughs> uh, that uh, the jury acquitted. And then, of course, there came the Oz trial, which was a magazine, underground magazine, accused of prom relentlessly promoting drugs, rock and roll, and fucking in the streets. That was Brian Leary prosecuting, and over six weeks in the summer of 1971, uh, the jury heard, based on the precedent set by uh, Jeremy and uh, Gerald Gardner in the Lady Chatterley trial, uh, witnesses uh, not only uh, to ethics and uh, literary uh, merit, but to humor Marty Feldman came and uh, gave evidence that Oz was in the interest of humour. Uh, he <laughs> called the judge a boring old fart in the course of it. George Melly came and said it was in the interest of culture. Uh, there was one moment when Judge Argyle said, um, for those of us, Mr. Melly, without a classical education, what do you mean by this word, cunnilinctus? <laughs> and uh, George, sort of lay, he, he thought it was a cry for help, rather like uh, <laughs> Mr. Hoggart. And he said, sucking, my lord, or blowing down, or blowing, or going down, or gobbling. In my naval days, my lord, we called it yodeling in the canyon. <laughs> and, of course, the, uh, there was a lot of amusement, laughter in court, and uh, this is a courtroom, not a theatre. Uh, said the judge, Brian Leary, who was a very clever prosecutor, and of course everyone had read the Lady Chatterley transcript in the trial of Lady Chatterley. Everyone was trying to improve a little uh, on, the, um, on uh, Gardner and Griffith-Jones. And whereas Griffith-Jones had asked uh, members of the jury, would you allow your wives, servants, children, your own children, to read this book, Brian was very clever, much more clever. He said, members of the jury... Um, your, your own children, of course, could read this book because uh, they'll be very well brought up. But would you like your neighbor's children <laughs> to read it? <laughs> Which uh, 
Uh, of course, the, they beat the. Con they were charged with conspiracy to corrupt public morals on the strength of the case of Sir Charles Sedley, the rights of the. Uh, and they were acquitted of that, but they were convicted of obscenity and they were sent to prison and they, uh, they were denied bail and their hair was cut and uh, they were hippies and uh, there was a cultural collision. There were more letters to the Times about the Oz trial than there were about the Suez crisis. And so, uh, but on the appeal, they succeeded on appeal again, thanks to the Lady Chatterley precedent because the judge had at least told the jury that under the new law, it wasn't enough to shock and disgust. Mr. Justice Byrne had made that clear. And uh, Judge Argyle had said, uh, if you're shocked and disgusted by the book, by Oz, then uh, you can convict it of obscenity. So there it went to the Court of Appeal, and it was quite clear. The judge, uh, Judge Argyle, wasn't very bright, and he'd made hundreds of, of errors, in legal errors, in, in summing up this case. And uh, the Lord Chief Justice was convinced that he'd made a fundamental error. But in those days, there was a proviso. You could apply the proviso so that there was not, um, so that there wouldn't, uh, the conviction and the sentence would be upheld. And there was a terrible uh, period when, when Lord Widgery, for it was he, uh, kept saying, oh, we've got to apply, apply the proviso. There couldn't be anything more obscene than this little description of oral sex. But uh, the other two judges, one of them in particular, Nigel Bridge, uh, <laughs> wanted to bring the judge up to date. He'd, he had a clerk who was an able seaman. So the court adjourned for several hours while the judges, Lord Justice Bridges' clerk, went to Soho and brought some uh, run-of-the-mill pornography back to show the Chief Justice what was readily available in Soho. Uh, and so he came in and uh, didn't apply the proviso, but issued a, a demand that, that pornographers should be prosecuted. There was, the Oz trial ended with this... Uh, extraordinary um, expostulation by the Chief, Chief Justice Widgery. And so when, when Helena and I came to the bar, the Old Bailey was a bit like a, a dirty cinema because <laughs> they, there'd always be five or six prosecutions of these new um, cinema clubs on the way and uh, deep throat. You'd, you'd get, I remember one jury was, it came for the first day and then they, Mike Corkery would open a prosecutor uh, who had taken over from Griffith Jones would open very, very straight members of the jury who are going to see a film that's been imported into the country. It's for you to say whether it's indecent or not. Then the lights would go out and Linda Lovelace would come on, deep throat. Ninety minutes later, the lights would go up <laughs> and the judge would make his exit in a kind of crouching <laughs> position. And the jury of 12 men just wouldn't move. And the, <laughs> the lady usher would go, went up and said, come on, come on, it's time for lunch. I've got to lock up the court. And they kept, they, wouldn't, they couldn't get up for several minutes. <laughs> until, and then finally, of course, the, the final case that did, the, did for obscenity in the, of the written word, the, the end of, of the, uh, what had started with Lady Chatterley's lover was... Uh, a rather shabby little book called Inside Linda Lovelace. And uh, in 1977, uh, it was tried. Uh, Brian Leary again, John Mortimer. Uh, we called uh, Ronald Dworkin, the professor of jurisprudence at Oxford University, to say that this book had sociological merit. <laughs> <laughs> 
the trajectory of Linda Lovelace was uh, indeed in the interests of sociology. And uh, the judge, who'd obviously led a sheltered life, said uh, to the jury, members of the jury, if this book isn't obscene, you may wonder what is. And uh, they came back and acquitted. And uh, that was the basis upon which the Williams Committee, Professor Bernard Williams, sat on the committee that had been set up to discuss what to do about obscenity. And uh, it recommended that after this verdict uh, that there should be no more prosecutions of the written word. Uh, and there have not. Uh, young jurors, the property change, the Linda Lovelace, inside Linda Lovelace jury, average age 25. The other thing I think that did for it was the evidence of police corruption, because whether or not um, books have corrupt young people, they certainly corrupt police officers, and uh, almost the entire dirty squad of Scotland Yard were jailed. Uh, in 1975, having for many years, while these cases went on, run uh, a protection racket protecting the pornographers of Soho. And so that really was the end of prosecutions of the written word, uh, except, of course, uh, Penguin Books called in 1988 to defend an entirely different kind of prosecution, the Ayatollah's fatwa on Salman Rushdie and the satanic verses, and uh, that today is the elephant in the room. The real censor is the fear. Um, when those Danish cartoons were published, you might have thought that British newspapers would make common cause and all publish them. Not a single one would have the guts to republish the Danish cartoons, and all our editors were patted on the head and by Jack Straw and told how responsible they were but that uh, Penguin uh, took the, uh, took, it didn't take the satanic verses off the market. It uh, kept, despite terrible threats, the uh, killing of one of the, tr the translators. Uh, it had uh, a very different and more frightening uh, time than Sir Alan Lane back in 1960. But uh, I suppose uh, his credo that he wanted to make good books available at a price as cheap as a packet of cigarettes uh, still has resonance. Cigarettes probably have gone up even more steeply than books and caused a lot more harm. But uh, the damage that gets attributed to books is very often caused by those who want to suppress them. That's obvious today. Uh, it wasn't very obvious in 1960. But let's finally, to end this uh, event, listen to the way Gerald Gardner made the case for acquittal of Lady Chatterley's lover back on November the 1st, 1960. The one thing which this act has made plain is that in future, in fairness to the author, the book must be judged as a whole. And even in the case of these particular purple passages, even though they were read out, making fun of the dialect and so on, you may have thought that the ultimate effect, even though so read, was only to underline the sensitiveness and beauty of it. Because there is, is there not, a high breathlessness about beauty which cancels lust, 
It is remarkable, is it not, how many of these witnesses, all choosing their own language and all putting it differently, have stressed Lawrence's integrity of purpose, his reverence for physical relations between men and women in love, in a permanent relationship, and their effect as something sacred. There has been talk of an expurgated version. It has been suggested that it would be much better if there was a whole lot of asterisks. It is said that to publish that would be quite all right because that version contains the letters F dot dot K and C dot dot T. Have we really descended to this? Are we so frightened of words that while it is perfectly all right to publish a book with F dot dot K, it is all wrong to publish a book with the word in its full form? This would, in fact, have destroyed the whole purpose with which Lawrence was using the words. People in real life do not say F dot dot K. When it is said that this is a book about adultery, one wonders how there can be things which people do not see. I suppose it is possible that somewhere there might be a mind which would describe Antony and Cleopatra as a tale about adultery. Antony had a wife in Rome, and I suppose there might be a mind somewhere which would describe this play of Shakespeare's as the story of a sex-starved man copulated with an Egyptian queen, a parallel with the way this book has been put before you on behalf of the prosecution. Thus there are minds which are unable to see beauty where it exists and doubt the integrity of purpose in an author where it is obvious. I must deal with a point that uh, is thought to be made by the prosecution. This is in a book published at three and six. It will be available to the general public. Of course, that is perfectly true and perfectly obvious. It may well be said that everyone will rush to buy it. That is also perfectly true and perfectly obvious because it happens in every case. But whose fault is that? It is always the fact that there has been a wrong prosecution of a book that leads a large number of people to buy it. My learned friend invited you to consider this question after you read it. Is it a book that you would even wish your wife or your servants to read. I cannot help thinking that this was, consciously or unconsciously, an echo from an observation which had fallen from the bench in an earlier case. It would never do to let members of the working class read this. Now, I do not want to upset the prosecution by suggesting that there are a certain number of people nowadays who, as a matter of fact, don't have servants. <laughs> But of course, that attitude is one which Penguin Books was formed to fight against, which they have always fought against, and which they will go on fighting against. The attitude that it is all right to publish a special edition at five or ten guineas so that people who are less well-off cannot read what other people read. Isn't everybody, whether earning ten pounds a week or twenty pounds a week, equally interested in the society in which we live, in the problems of human relationships, including sexual relationships? In view of the reference made to wives, aren't women equally interested in human relations, including sexual relationships. 
You were invited to consider whether the book had a tendency to suggest impure thoughts. What is the meaning of impure thoughts? It is evil thoughts, impure and lascivious thoughts. And if one looks to the dictionary under L, one could add lecherous and lustful. What it means, no one has the foggiest idea. If it means thoughts of sexual intercourse, then the whole population has been corrupted and depraved from a very early age. <laughs> it could only mean this on the assumption that sexual intercourse is unclean and impure, and therefore thoughts about it are unclean and impure. This is obviously something quite different from the sole definition in the act, which is whether the effect of the book, if taken as a whole, is such as would tend to deprave and corrupt persons who are likely to read it. Society cannot fix its standards by what is suitable for a young person of 14. My submission is that the book would not deprave or corrupt anyone in real life, young people included. With deference to my friend, I should add, not even your wives and servants. I would ask you to bear in mind that this decision is entirely your responsibility on all questions of fact. Judges have approached this question from rather different points of view, and I suppose as long as human nature, this is, uh, is human nature, this is the sort of case in which judges may hold personal views, one judge taking one view and one another. That makes it all the more important, does it not, that you and you alone, the representatives of the public, should decide that which is your responsibility. Now, Lawrence lived and died suffering from a public opinion caused by the banning of this book that he had written a piece of pornography called Lady Chatterley's Lover. The slur was never justified. All the time, the book was the passionately sincere book of a moralist in the Puritan tradition who believed he had a message for us and the society in which we live, whether we agree with it or not. Is it not time that we rescue Lawrence's name from the quite unjust reputation which because of this book it has always had and allowed our people, his people, to judge for themselves his high purpose? Members of the jury, I leave Lawrence's reputation and the reputation of Penguin Books with confidence in your hands. I've just got three very quick things to do. One is to welcome and thank Helena for making it. <laughs> Second is to thank everybody who's on this platform for what has clearly been a wonderful journey through legal and social history, brought very much up to date with some very important messages for our own society. I think it's a real tribute that at this time, I think very, very few people have left. So I thank you all very much for this wonderful evening. And thirdly and lastly, 
There are copies of the anniversary edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover for sale outside. The anniversary edition includes an essay from Geoffrey Robertson and various letters and other um, parts of some of the stories that you've been hearing tonight. Geoffrey has agreed to sign copies, I believe. And, uh, but if you could um, stay seated while you go, go so that you can get um, back and then once uh, they have left then of course you go and thank you all very much for coming good night